The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. We're really delighted to um, have this event tonight about a wonderful book, China's Quest, by Professor Emeritus John Carver. I must say, uh, first of all, I'm Jan Barris from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We're delighted to welcome all of you here, delighted to see several new faces. Um, I must say that when I first saw this book, <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, that's quite a bit to read, and it looks quite daunting. And I happened to be a procrastinator, and I kept putting it off, and the more I put it off, the larger it loomed <laughs> in my mind. And actually, I saw John last week or two weeks ago in Seattle at the Association of Asian Studies and told him that it looked quite daunting. And he said, well, how do you like it so far? I said, I have to admit I haven't started it yet. But once I started it, I'm here to say that um, it's really a wonderful book. It's very clear. It's very well written. It's concise, if you can say that about a book like this, but he's covering a lot of territory. He's covering the foreign policy of the People's Republic of China from its founding until just this past year. And he covers a lot, and I think it is going to become the go-to book for those who want a thoughtful, balanced, articulate overview of the history of China's foreign policy. Thank so you, you're welcome. I've got just a small commission on anything. <laughs> and speaking of commissions, I also, I looked... Before um, I looked about an hour or so before John came on Amazon, so I wanted to see what they were charging compared to what we were charging. And A, we're, you're getting a deal if you buy it tonight. And B, there's only 13 copies left on Amazon. So may not be there tomorrow. So you should get a book tonight and take it back with you, even though Amazon does deliver and we don't. But um, we've asked John to talk a little bit about the book and then we will open it up to questions. Uh, so without further ado, John, looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Jan. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let me say thank you, first of all, to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for, for inviting me and for bringing us together. It's a great honor. Um, the reason I wrote this book was because the situation of the academic study of, of China China's foreign relations is very peculiar. The peculiarity is that China was long been recognized as a major world power, and yet there simply was not a comprehensive narrative history of Chinese foreign relations. There are there was a, no, a number of solid studies of, so, of Soviet diplomacy. I think of Adam Ulam's expansion and coexistence. That written in 1967, a master, and his book, by the way, is about the same length as mine. <laughs> uh, but there really wasn't a, a study of comprehensive narrative history of Chinese foreign, PRC, People's Republic of China Foreign Relations. And this in spite of the fact that China, the PRC, has long been recognized as a leading world power. It was in 1950 that China, not yet a year old, decided to go to war with the United States and Korea and fought the United States to a standstill of an intense three-year war. Uh, China has, under Mao Zedong, was, uh, fought the Soviet Union, or fought India, fought the United States again indirectly in a proxy war in Vietnam. It supported insurgencies in a dozen Southeast Asian countries that played a major role in the international communism. China was a major power under Mao. Under Deng Xiaoping, China... China's economic development became stellar. Rates of economic development usually associated with much smaller countries. Incredible pace of industrialization development in Deng Xiaoping. China, by, after entering the WTO, continued that growth and is on its way to becoming the number two, maybe the number one economy in the world. <clears throat> Most economists predict that China will, China's economy will surpass the United States sometime around the 2020s. And yet, there is no comprehensive narrative history of Chinese foreign relations. I'm sorry. The last overview of Chinese foreign relations was published in 1970 by a guy named Harold Hinton. 
And I read that study. It's an excellent study. And I chose this title as a deliberate echo to Harold Hinton's role in, in, in that earlier study. But I, after all, 1970, the late 60s, is a lot, a lot of territory since then, since then. Now, there are some edited volumes by collections of scholarly work covering this or that aspect of, of Chinese foreign relations. There's Sino-U.S. relations, Sino-Japanese relations, foreign investment in China's rise, so on and so, so forth. But again, there was no comprehensive study. <clears throat> there are hundreds of good journal articles, hundreds of good journal articles dealing with narrow aspects. There are also, again, a lot of books dealing with particular aspects of Chinese foreign policy. There is a rich archival material coming from the declassified Soviet archives and Eastern European archives that become avail- has become available to a scholar since the end of the Cold War. <clears throat> There's also a trove of Chinese memoir materials written by Chinese ambassadors, plenipotentiaries, representatives, foreign ministers, great stuff. Chen Chen, Tang Jiaxuan, Huang Hua, Gang Biao, uh, you know, people, memoirs by Chinese representatives. But there was no comprehensive systematic overview. <clears throat> I felt this over this need for a synthetic history in the 30 years that I taught at Georgia Tech. Every other year or so, I would teach a course on foreign relations of the People's Republic of China. And I teach basically that was this, what's in this book. But the students didn't know that history. They simply didn't know what the Cold War was about. You know, the communist insurgency in Southeast Asia. What's going on there, Dr. Garber? Well, what's this deal about the split in the international communist? They didn't know that history. And I couldn't lecture on it. So what I do, because there's simply enough time. So I put readings on reserve in the library. But my reserve risk got longer and longer and longer. And of course, as a practical matter, as a teacher, the longer the reserve list, the less likely students are to engage any of it. So again, we needed a single volume comprehensive narrative survey, comprehensive narrative history of Chinese foreign relations. And by narrative history, I meant a history written for you guys, college-educated lay people, not scholars of Chinese foreign relations. This is basically a straightforward attempt to, to, to describe, first and foremost, what China did in its foreign relations. And the debates among we academics, I, keep, I try to keep to the footnotes. <coughs> the, um, <coughs> You know, I think probably the reason I didn't undertake this before 2012 was that it was simply too too big of a task. I mean, how in the, that was probably the reason why nobody else has written this book before. It's, it's simply too too many strings, too complex. How do you tackle that? And that that's what kept me from ta- taking it up. And I suspect it's what deterred other people. In the summer of 2012, I finished my fifth iteration of an East Asian program. I took students, Georgia Tech students, to South Korea, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, Guangdong Province to study East Asian development, economic and political. Did that five times. Took five groups of students over. The previous decade, in the 1990s, I did the same thing with China. China took groups of students to China for for two months to study China's transition from a from a mar- if I plan to a market I mean, great stuff you know it's the most important teaching I did is in my 30 years at Georgia Tech taking kids to East Asia like that powerful pedagogy experience so I'd, I'd finished that and I was pretty sure I was looking forward to retirement and I wasn't going to do that so I said what should I do what should I do you know, should I undertake this book that I've been thinking about for a long time and, and I've read all this stuff you know those books those, all those books and articles I read most of that stuff that didn't stewing around my mind for 30-some years. and Should I attempt to put it down on paper? And, but it was such an immense task. Finally, it was my sage wife, Penelope Prime, who said, John, look, if you don't write this thing, or at least try to re- write it, you'll regret it. You still have the vigor now to do this. You want it in a few more years. You want to have the vigor. 
if you try to write it and don't, well, at least you'll know you tried. If you try to write and do it, it will be the, the, your magnum opus, the synthesis of your life's learning about this topic. Write the damn thing. As a, as a wise husband, I recognized her sage advice. <laughs> She was right, and the result is this. I started writing in the summer of 2012, and by the summer of 2015, it was finished, and inshallah, Oxford University Press I took up the project, and here it is for only $30. Here, not on Amazon. <clears throat> you know, I knew, these, these, I knew the terrain. I, I'd read these books. I studied this. I have in my files, I just told Jenner this earlier, I have in my files a report I wrote when I was 13 years old in 1959 on the uprising in Tibet against the Chinese and Dalai Lama's flight to, to, to China, to, I'm sorry, to India. I have no idea why in the world I wrote this. I was in junior high and in middle school. I have no idea why I wrote it, but, but there I was. And then when I was drafted in 1969, it was, of course, to go to Vietnam or because of the Vietnam War. And I was trying to figure out why are we in Vietnam? And I discovered we were in Vietnam to contain China. So I've been studying this. And then, you know, by serendipity, I made a career, forged a career in Chinese studies. So I've been reading these books and articles. I knew the terrain. It was just been cooking right up here in my mind. All I had to do was write it down. And writing that actually when I got into it was, was pretty easy, especially since I was re- realized I was writing for folks like you and not for other academics in, China, in the fair of Chinese foreign relations. So my first objective in writing the book was to synthesize the existing secondary literature. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of good studies of the 58 Taiwan Straits crisis or of the eradication of the deep-rooted foreign presence in China in 1949, 50, People have written hundreds of good books and articles about that. What hasn't been done and what I want to do was synthesize that existing secondary literature, the existing scholarship. <clears throat> and the result was, there. the result is a big book, 785 pages, not counting the notes. Now, the major problem I had in writing, writing the book was I was trying to do two different, two different things, really. One, and the, the, the first objective was to, to write a comprehensive narrative history, a mosaic history of Chinese foreign relations, chronologically organized, started in 1949, moved through 2015. What did China do at this period in this? And I tracked China's relations with five major powers, the United States, the USSR, and the Russian Federation, Japan, India, and Iran. And I'm convinced that Iran is a rising power, certainly views itself as a rising power. Ever since the modern Sino-Iranian relation began in the 1970s, Iran has imagined itself to be the dominant power in that region of the world. And that's what this this conflict is about, still about today. So those are the five powers I was trying to to cut, to, to survey, summarize the patterns of Chinese conflictual and cooperative relations with those five powers from 1949 to 2015. The second thing I was trying to do was to elucidate, make clear the powerful domestic drivers of China's foreign relations. You know, I was thinking about China over the last, gosh, 50-some years. I started this when I was 13 years old. I'm 70 now, so, you know, really 50-some years I've been thinking about this. And I... The more I thought about it, the more I concluded that domestic factors really do drive China, a whole lot of China's foreign relations. Not everything, but a lot, a lot. And I wanted to explain the, the, the ways, the periods in which these domestic factors drove China's foreign relations. So this is a more of a theoretical concern. So there was a constant tension between this, the crafting of a narrative mosaic history and elucidating the theoretical structure of the domestic foreign linkages in in China. And that was actually the hardest thing that I encountered in writing this book, not knowing what to say or who wrote what. I knew that stuff. The hard thing was was to try to balance a straightforward chronological narrative with this explication of the theoretical theoretical understanding of the domestic international linkages, to use political science jargon. 
So, you know, I won't say whether I successfully leave that to you, but that was that was the, the big problem I had in, in, in writing the book. So, let me turn from the origins of the book to a little bit of the substance of the book and talk about the domestic drivers of Chinese foreign relations. There's three domestic drivers of China's foreign relations, 1949 to 2015. State formation, the formation of a new state, a revolutionary state, a new state in the nomenclature of the PRC, a dictatorship of the proletariat, a proletarian dictatorship committed to the destruction of capitalism and the foundation of a socialist, social, socialist economy and social system and the construction of socialism in preparation for the transition to communism. State formation. A second factor, and these are all interrelated, is the legitimization of state authority. Legitimization of state authority. Again, that's a political science jargon meaning the, the supply of a set of convincing ideas which persuade people subject to governmental authority, to state authority, that that authority is in some way fair and, and fair and just and good, and therefore they should submit to it and not, not seek to undermine it. Every state, every state deals with a state. You guys know what a state is. A centralized coercive apparatus. Every state will attempt to legitimize itself, and periodically the PRC, has this, this revolutionary state, has gone through, through crises of legitimacy and has tried to struggle to re-legitimize itself. So legitimization is the second factor. The third factor is state survival, survival of this, of this revolutionary state. There's a scholarly literature on, the, on all of the state formation, state legitimization, state survival. And I lay out some of this in the first chapter of the book. But again, it's not a political science book. But what I do try to use is, is I use that theory, the body of theory, to understand China's foreign relations. Now, frequently, this, this, this structure, theoretical structure of state formation worked very well state formation or state legitimization, state survival worked very well. But sometimes it didn't really work very well. For example, in understanding the Chinese attack on Vietnam in 1979, yeah, you can find domestic links to that, but that's really not about that. That's about, that's about Chinese fear of Soviet encirclement. It's about China's historic relation with <coughs> Cambodia and, and its relationship with Vietnam. It's not really about domestic politics. So there are a number of things that, that really didn't fit into this domestic driver rubric. And in those cases, what I do, I go ahead and describe the straightforward chronological narrative and forget about the, 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 the theoretical domestic foreign linkages. But, uh, so, okay. I, I believe there were three periods of what I call acts as in a great drama, three acts of the drama of Chinese foreign relations, three acts in terms of this domestic international linkage. The first is 1949 to 1978, the era of Mao Zedong. Of course, Mao dies in 76, so including the two-year interregnum of Hua Guofeng, 49 to 78, the era of war and revolution under Mao Zedong. The second act, 1979-1989, between Deng's establishment as paramount leader of the Chinese Communist Party and the beginning of the crisis, the global crisis of world socialism, 1989-91. That period, 78-89, is what I call the happy interregnum. Happy for a number of reasons, but it's only a 10-year period. The third period, the third act, 1989 to 2015, which I dub socialism in one country. Now, if you've studied your Soviet history, you know that was this, the rubric that Stalin used in 19, the 1920s and 30s. And I, th I use that term intentionally to echo the earlier period. And I think the situation of, this, of the People's Republic of China today is strikingly similar to that of the USSR in the, 19, in the 1930s. It's a socialist country that feels isolated and embattled by, 
by far more powerful social, uh, capitalist countries around it. So socialism one country, the Leninist state besieged. So Act One, uh, stage of socialist revolution, socialist construction. The objective was to found, to destroy the old state, the bourgeois state of the, to use the nomenclature, the, the Marxist Leninist nomenclature, the CCP, to destroy the bourgeois state headed by the KMT and John Kashek, establish a pro- dictatorship of the proletariat led by the Chinese Communist Party and Mao Zedong, and use the coercive power of this new state to eliminate capital, to, to drive imperialism out, to eliminate capitalism, found the lay a transfer socialism to to the to China, the model of socialism being the the, the models the institutional models developed at the USSR under Stalin in the nineteen twenties and thirties to trans transfer pretty much in, in toto the, the corpus of Soviet socialism, Soviet Stalinist socialism to China, and then to throw that system into high gear and a period of, as Stalin did in the Soviet Union with the five-year plan starting in 1928, achieved the modernization of the Chinese economy within a period of 10 or between 15 and 20 years. Now, this was an immensely difficult task. Capitalism in China was was quite strong. Capital, you know, the Chinese people have historically been great capitalists. And in the hundred years between 1842, at the end of the First Civil War, and 1949, the Chinese capitalist class, to use that rubric, dove deeply and powerfully into the global economy. Shanghai was the center of the Asian Pacific economy, financial center. Japan, which was more industrialized, was under military rule. Shanghai was a free port, open city. You know, if you wanted to float, you know, bonds in, in these days, you didn't go to Yokohama. You went to Shanghai because it was it was capitalist. Uh, the militarists or anything's over in Japan. China's capitalist class was very powerful. Then you had the hundreds of millions of Chinese who were peddlers and barbers and pawn keepers and innkeepers and and tailors and masseuses and you know all the the thousand different professions that Chinese are today. The people that make China rich after 1978, they made it rich historically. A large part of the of China's middle class, urban, I'm sorry, China's urban population in 1949 looked not to the USSR, but to the West, to France, to Britain, to the United States. French movie, I'm sorry, French language was very popular. The Alliance Francaise was very popular in places like Shanghai. Hollywood movies were the rage in Shanghai. They were so popular that when the CCP decided to to shift from American Hollywood movies to Soviet movies, they delayed for a couple of years until they get a good stock of Soviet movies because they're afraid of riots if they simply pulled the American ones out. So strong resistance to the to the socialist to the elimination of capitalism, construction of socialism. Moreover, the, the socialist revolution and and dictatorship of the proletariat was not what the CCP had promised during the struggle for power. In fact, what the CCP had promised was new democracy, which was to be a coalition, multi-party government into political prisoners, and so on and so forth. It was to be state-assisted development of patriotic capitalism. So the CCP in 19, after 1949 was basically trying to impose a package which was really very different than what it promised in the political struggle with the KMT after 1945. So how do you, this Mao's problem, the CCP's problem was how to mobilize support for this really unpopular program of transition to socialism. Confrontation with the United States served the bill very well. War with the United States and Korea, of course, had its drawbacks, but mobilization, turning the United States into enemy was, enabled the, the transition to socialism to be conducted under a flag of patriotism and speaking out for for bourgeois democratic ideas or capitalism was a, was was a type of treason. The second period of Mao's well, the second period of Mao's domestic international linkage had to do with his struggle against revisionism. And here the idea is that by the early 1960s, people within the party were coming to the conclusion that Mao's leadership was no longer prudent or wise. And he needed to be pushed uh, to a second rank, second tier of leadership. 
Mao is mobilizing support to prevent that. And by dubbing these people <coughs> revisionists, revisionists like this, well, the intensification of political struggle against Soviet revisionists was closely linked to Mao's struggle against revisionists within the CCP. So the long and the short of it is that Mao was a revolutionary from beginning to end and didn't distinguish between domestic and international aspects of revolution. For Mao, waging war against the, Ameri the American imperialists was the, the counterpart of waging war against China's capitalists and the classes, the pro-imperialist classes within China. Waging war against, waging political struggle against the Soviet revisionists was the counterpart of waging war against the revisionists within the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, that's the first act one. Act two is somewhat simpler. By the end of the Mao period, the Chinese people were poor. Very poor. I first went to mainland China in 1982, and they were poor. Nanjing, a city of maybe three million people, had two or three a few restaurants. They were poor. There were the, the Stalinist model of industrialization is you know, to suck wealth out of every aspect, every crevice of the economy, and channel it into the, the rapid expansion of heavy industry. And that works great in increasing your industrial production by 20% a year. But that means you don't produce much clothes or food or, or housing or medical facilities. The Chinese the industry was booming maybe, not at a very inefficient rate, but they were very poor. They were tired. They were disillusioned. They were angry. China's leaders at the end of Mao in 77, 78 realized, at least those that rallied around Deng Xiaoping, realized that unless the Chinese Communist Party took a new course, they were toast. They would not be around long. And I was amazed by the frankness in which China's leaders discussed the, the crisis of legitimacy. And Deng Xiaoping's solution was rapid increases in the standard of living. Will give the Chinese people clothing and food and housing, better better transportation, better medical care, and they will support us. And this was the interestingly among the first things that Deng authorized for import was cloth, because cloth was somebody something that everybody needed had been rationed during the stall during the, the planned economy period. Was in short supply to get cloth. You needed people had were allocated enough to each year to get a, make a new suit of clothing, which wasn't enough to wear threadbed cloth. And Deng said, "So let's import a lot of cloth and and distribute it cheaply, and people will know that we're taking a new direction." So the foreign policy correlate of this was to I think two things. I'm going to mention two things. First of all, to pour new economic wine into the strategic strategic alliance with the United States established by Mao. Mao had established the alliance with the United States, the strategic partnership with the United States, not for economic reasons, but to contain the Soviet Union. What Ma what Deng did was keep the, the uh, Triangle Alliance with the United States but pour economic wine into it, and that worked brilliantly. The, the problem was, how do you persuade the world's most powerful capitalist country to support the, the, the modernization of the economic development of a strong socialist China that is communist rule China? And Deng's solution is you do that by aligning with the United States against the USSR. Worked brilliantly. Can you do Act 3 in three minutes? Okay, Act 3 in three minutes. Um... Act three, you have a whole series of, of upheavals which challenge the, the, the CCP regime. The uprising in China in April, May, June 1989, a near-death experience. The CCP came very close to losing control and was able to regain control only by sending in the armed forces to shoot down unarmed civilians. A near-death experience followed very quickly by the uprising and collapse one after the other in quick succession of the fraternal socialist countries in Eastern Europe. Boom, boom, boom. And then in 1990, the split within the Soviet Communist Party and the defection of a large group of anti-communists led by Boris Yeltsin, who proclaimed Russia was a European nation. And then within a year, the or a year and a half, the collapse of the USSR the big brother of the socialist camp who had so many 70-some years of experience in building socialism. 
the same time in East Asia you have South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines undergoing transition to democracy. Indonesia in 1990, the collapse of authoritarian regimes. You have um, the color revolution of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan, Georgia, Ukraine, overthrowing the post-Soviet communist, ex-communist governments in those areas. You have the Arab Spring of 2000. The point we're living in a world of revolution, and a key target of the revolu- these revolutions are these authoritarian, well, these Leninist state or quasi-Leninist states in an era of the internet. Remember, it's the 1990s that that, uh, the internet becomes popular in the 2000s social media. So the the CCP is living in a world in which its its ideas are profoundly challenged by these revolutionary ideas. Not necessarily liberal democracy, but, but other types of ideas too, which still challenge the CCP's monopoly on power. But they're sh- moving around the world with incredible power via these new transport uh, information technologies. So, Leninist state besieged socialist state in one country. The foreign policy correlate of this is indoctrination, indoctrination of the people with uh, patriotism. The CCP's response to the, the crisis that starts in 89 and continues to 91, 89 to 91, the CCP calls that the years of the upheaval. The CCP's response to that was intensified patriotic education to explain to Chinese the ways in which the bourgeois liberal ideas are really sugar-coated bullets of the Western countries led by the United States, is the usual formulation. The Western countries led by the United States to create instability in China, fragment China, bring about the de- decline, the overthrow of the Chinese Communist Party, basically to bring China low so that China will no longer be an obstacle to U.S. global domination and will be reduced to a period condition of servility such as it was prior to 1949. Intensified indoctrination. The other c- component of this is, is a, an assertive foreign policy which promises to, to give the Chinese people something they may want even more than, than personal freedom and, and, and protection against arbitrary government, and that is Chinese greatness. China as a re, great rejuvenated nation. Now, what a great rejuvenated China would exactly mean is question four. There's no single definition, but many Chinese bloggers, not, not the government, but nationalist bloggers in China assist, insist that what it means is China will be the paramount leading country in the world as it was through most of history. Many Chinese nationalists believe that throughout several millennia of history China was up on top and the other countries of Asia were down below it and that of course was due to China's superior virtue which was manifest in its superior wealth and social order that was a normal condition until it was destroyed. China was brought low by the imperialist powers and that, that is the condition that's to be reestablished. And this is a, an objective which is de- ardently desired by many Chinese patriots, many Chinese nationalists, this restoration of long-lost national greatness. And the CCP's bet, I think, is that that, at the end of the day, will be a, 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 vision, a, a vision which would be more attractive than rule of law protection of individual rights from government by, by law. And, of course, with that, you can't simply have the program. You have to show nationalists that you're doing it. And that's what, that explains a large part of Xi Jinping's assertive diplomacy in Asia and the South, in Indian Ocean, and around the world. So I think Jan's giving me the EOI here. Uh, those are the three three stages of China's domestic international linkages. Okay, thank you. So, um, I have lots of questions, but I'm going to open it to the floor first, um, and then we'll see how much time I have left over to ask. When you ask a question, please wait for the microphone, and please also tell us who you are and where you work. Woman over there, Alex. 
Hi, and thank you so much for your uh, talk. My name is Nina Lazarudi. I work for um, Kazakhstan Global Java, a New York-based nonprofit. Um, and my question was the following. So I'm going to first refer to um, a work of um, Harvard Business Professor from Harvard Business School, Robert Abdelal, and his recent research, which is turning into the book is titled The Profits of Power, where he's leaning on um, the work of um, works of um, economic liberalists, such as Andrew Moravchik. And he he's exploring the links between the uh, big corporations and the um, governmental institutions, and he's observing this um, sort of turning of the tables where it's the corporations that are starting to dictate foreign policy. And it's becoming very apparent both in the United States, in Europe, and in Russia, where corporations, especially such as Amazon, um, are taking the reins. So what if he does not explore China in detail, and I wanted to see if you have you know, there are a lot of valid ways to analyze a, a, a problem. I focus on China's relations with the, the high level, basically strategic relations, rivalry, and patterns of cooperation and conflict at the highest level. Uh, I don't look at the political, at the um, the economic institutions, that would be very valuable by approach. That's not the approach I take. Mm -hmm. I would say that, that there's a debate in China underway, and it's been underway for a number of years and probably will continue for some time, on the balance between the, the private sector and the state sector. Mm -hmm. And there's a debate. There are, there are economists, prominent Chinese economists, who believe very strongly that the state sec China's successes are due to the strong state enterprises, state support, state industrial policy and that China must, and this, this is really what Chinese socialism means, so there are, these corporations are run as, as on the basis of market but with strong state support, industrial policy, subsidies and so forth, um, and our state guidance, and that's why China has been so successful. That's the point of view of people like Huang Gong. On the other hand, there are people like Justin Lin formerly of the World Bank, who believe that, that the markets are the way to go and the state sector must be shrunk and the, the market sector has to expand. The state sector is inefficient, non-dynamic. It sucks in capital that could better go to more efficient, dynamic firms. So there's a debate underway. Um, you know, and then I... I you know, I suspect it's the debate over the very identity of China. Is China <clears throat> is China going to become part of the rest of the world, or is there something unique? The way this uh, this debate is often framed in China is in terms of you know, Chinese uniqueness. Is China is China there's something distinctive about China that needs so it must follow its own way, or should should it really follow global patterns like like the rest of the world? China. The official media often refer to this as the West led by the United States, but it's not really. These values of, of you know, separation of government and, and, and corporations by law, and that's really a global phenomenon, although there are differences in models of capital to East Asia and in Europe and North America. Back to the woman. Hello, my name is Kathy Spence. I'm with the investment firm called TBT Partners, and we um, have some partner companies in China. Uh, um, my question relates to your comment about uh, the use of, uh, I guess, turning the US into a, a common enemy or um, a perceived enemy during Act One which was a, a key mechanism for uh, helping to drive patriotism. And I'm just wondering what your view in, is about how the US is being characterized right now or what that means for Act 3 and the relationship between China and the US. Because, um, you know, some some thinkers might say, you know, uh, have, have the theory that the, the best thing for both countries is greater 
integration, integrated economic integration. But um, how does that play in terms of... Uh, is that too subtle a message for um, Chinese leadership to, to uh, in order to get the outcomes that they need economically? You know, I think there's a disjuncture between the high-level thinking and strategy on the one hand and political, popular political culture as in large part constructed by the CCP propaganda ideological apparatus on the other. In terms of the top leadership and national development strategy, the, uh, China's strategy since, since Deng Xiaoping is to, to avoid confrontation with the United States, to cooperate with the United States, because, uh, because China realizes that the, the global capitalism, for better or worse, has been dominated by the United States, and if China wants access to Western capital and Western technology and Western markets and Western investment, it, it needs to avoid confrontation with the United States. Now, that's also laid on top a lesson of the Soviet Union. The Chinese have, have studied the Soviet experience very closely, I think more deeply than any other people in the world. And one of the lessons they've concluded is that the Soviet, one of the blunders of the Soviet Union was by making itself the enemy of its neighbors and of other, kind, other major powers. So the Soviet Union had a, you know, a, a defense burden of maybe 50% of GDP, we know after the breakup of the Soviet Union. An immense burden, you know, like the country at total war, Japan or Germany in 1944-45 might have approached that level. So China's, you know, China's purpose is to avoid a confrontation with the United States to work out a peaceful rise with the United States. And when, I, when Chinese leaders talk about this, I don't think that's a f fraud. It's based upon a recognition of China's own interests. The, the objective is to avoid, to become a leading world power without a confrontation with the United States because, well, China could lose, and if it doesn't lose, it's, it's not a good thing. So the national strategy is, is, is bad, is reassuring, and, and, and fortunately I think there's a conversion between American elite thinking and Chinese elite thinking along those lines. But on the other hand, if you look at Chinese popular culture, the books at the bookstores, you know, the, any, any Chinese bookstore, there'll be a whole table full of books about you know, how the Americans are scheming to do these bad things to China, to, you know, to cause Tibet to split off or encouraging Taiwan independence or, you know, persuading Chinese PhDs in America to stay and not return to China or yeah, it's all sorts of stuff. A lot of it is nonsense, but it sells books in the newspapers. And this is... There's... It's not... It's that, 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 that sinister line regarding the United States, which does dominate popular culture, is is encouraged by the propaganda agency, by the by the which runs the media, by the ideological apparatus. So, you know, I account for that. Why? What accounts for this disjunction between the high elite policy and popular culture? You know, I think that China's leaders are afraid of the defection. They will lose the loyalty of China's youth, of China's intelligentsia, of a good portion of China's urban middle class. And how that will result, what will be the consequence, I don't, I don't think even they know. But there's a lesson of China, the experience of China, that near-death experience of China, you know, there's a lot of anger in China over, not over the absence of democracy, but over land seizures and air pollution, water pollution, police brutality, uh, corruption. There are, you know, over, I forget the number, well over 100,000 mass incidents a year. And you've got people into this, in the street over these, over these issues. If you had some other you know, foreign policy issues are emotional issues. First of all, they cross-cut regions, they cross-cut classes, they involve a lot of people, and secondly, that first they're cross-cutting, secondly, they're emotional issues. You know, air pollution that's 
it might give your your kid asthma 15 down the years 15 years down the road is one thing but for the Americans to bomb our embassy in in, in Belgrade and, 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 and humiliate the Chinese people that way that's something else these are hot issues and I, I think that one of the the, 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 the political fears of China's leaders are first of all they will lose the, the political loyalty of, of the youth intelligence in some part of the middle class and those people will probably either go to western well, I, again I use that term myself liberal democracy or even some more militant form of Chinese nationalism. Or there'll be people, there'll be some incident, some foreign incident, like which arouses people emotion, and people come into the streets and begin by protesting pollution and high land costs and land seizures. And it's awful easy for the, to the target to shift from land seizures to little Japan. Little Japan, Xiaoban is bullying China in the Senkaku and the Diaoyutu Islands. Little Japan is doing the bullying China in the Senkaku Islands. Or Little Philippines is, is bullying China, seizing Chinese territory down Scar Scarborough Reef. Um, so the government has to, on the one hand, has to pose itself as a stern, effective, bold, forceful defender of China's interests who is, in fact, establishing China as one of the world's leading countries, which all Chinese patriots want in their heart of hearts. And they have to show Chinese patriots that, that they're really moving in that direction, and they have to persuade them that, oh, that without the Communist Party, there will be no new China, that the, that the firm authoritarian rule of the, of the Chinese Communist Party is completely necessary, not only for China's economic development, and to defend China against the nefarious schemes of the American hegemonists who employ all sorts of people to cook them up. Okay, Bill. I'm Bill Einbrust, a retired journalist, and uh, my first uh, uh, year of graduate school, we used uh, Harold Hinton's book for a class in Chinese foreign policy. <laughs> there you so go. What goes look, look, look forward to reading your book. <laughs> Uh, I don't recall the five powers that you uh, mentioned that, that you sort of frame your book around, but uh, I know you said the U.S., the Soviet Union, Iran. Japan. Did you mention Japan? India and Japan. Japan. India and Japan. And um, my other question, you talked about the three goals of the state uh, formation, survival. Legitimacy and survival. Legitimacy, yeah. But you, you didn't mention the party at all uh, in, in terms of those three major goals. And I did. I, I used the acronym CCP, Chinese right. Communist Party. Okay. Well, yeah, so your question is? Oh, 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 okay, so the, the party does figure in to... The state, is, yeah, the, the, C, PR, the People's Republic of China is a Leninist state. The, according to the Constitution of the People's Republic of China, is under the state operates under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, this is a model of political organization worked out by the Bolsheviks from 1917 to the to mid 1920s, and the idea is that the party is the vanguard of the revolution, the vanguard of development, understands more deeply and fully the laws of history and social development. So, the vanguard party again, this is Leninism. This is Leninism 101. The, the vanguard party, the centralized discipline party, mobilizes and leads the people in the revolution through its control of the state, in part. And so there's a whole number of mechanisms through which the party controls the state. The part, state organizations are encadred by party committees. The leading personnel of state organizations are appointed, promoted, and removed by, by party by party. Uh, party leaders hold party party members hold the leading positions in most state organizations, uh, and so on and so forth. There's there's you know half dozen basic techniques through which Leninist parties, when they're vital, control the state. Now, what happens in Soviet Union? Maybe what what the CCP feared was about to happen, or was happening under Hu Yaobang was that those mechanisms of party control were becoming atrophied. 
and the states go their own, the state goes their own way. But you know, the fundamental element of party building since since the upheaval of eighty nine ninety one has been to strengthen party leadership over the state. The People's Republic of China is under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Tom. I'm Tom DeLuca, Fordham University. Uh, I was wondering if I could just ask a historical question to go back to the period of the Korean War. Um, in terms of um, the decision um, uh, to actually invade South Korea by the North Koreans, uh, my understanding is that was done in consultation with Stalin. Uh, so, so one question was, to what degree was, was Mao involved in that? And um, uh, more importantly, to what degree was there any thinking about if the Chinese supported North Koreans against the Americans, that that would make it much less likely that they'd be able to then take back Taiwan. Kim Il-sung worked up a program to for the armed liberation of South Korea in 1940. Probably it was 1948 and goes and pitches that to Stalin. And Stalin says no, several times, no, no. The American, de- the, the American declarations of early 1950 by Ashenson and by Truman himself regarding the hands-off policy towards Korea, the drawing of the line excluding Taiwan and, and, and South Korea, and Ashenson's famous statement convinced Stalin that it was safe to go. But Stalin, this is according to archives, Soviet archives that were given to Kim Jong-sam, South Korea's president in 1993, when South Korean Soviet uh, Russian relations were normalized, and Kim Jong-sam visited Moscow and asked Yeltsin to declassify it and hand over to South Korea all the records dealing with the origin of the Korean War. Yeltsin did that, and these records have been a boon to we scholars ever since. According to those records, after the American indications of early 50 that the Americans would not intervene, Stalin told Kim, okay, it's a go. But you need to go to Beijing and talk to Comrade Mao Zedong. And if Mao says, okay, then we're good to go. But if Mao says, well, there might be problems, then we'll shelve it and consider it sometime later. Kim goes to Beijing and says, Comrade Mao, Comrade Stalin has said we're good to go. What do you think? And Stalin's in a, Mao's in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a pickle. Mao is trying to, first of all, convince Stalin that he, Mao, is a good communist. Stalin has deep doubts about the class character of Mao because he's, he's a peasant. He's an intellectual. He's not a proletarian. He's a nationalist. And there's deep history with that. You understand that. Mao wants, Mao wants, you know, to, Mao wants Soviet system in the construction of socialism in China. And that means he needs a lot of stuff from the Soviet Union. A lot of stuff. So Mao's in the situation that he has to convince Stalin that he, Mao's a good communist, so that Stalin opened the spigots of aid to China, to the construction of social, socialist revolution and construction in China. So if Mao says no to Kim, he queers his relationship with Stalin, right? Um, there's also, Stalin had, told, had tried to tell the Chinese Revolution to stop at several points, and Mao had said, no, he didn't, Mao didn't actually say no, but he didn't do what Stalin wanted. Mao continued to advance. The, most, the last of these was in 1948 when Stalin told the Communist armies to stop at the Yangtze River. And the south, China south of the Yangtze under KMT control, north would be China would be divided between north and south, and you know north would be the Soviet sphere and south would be the American sphere. And Mao said, "Heck to that!" and goes ahead. So Mao is very angry about this, and he doesn't want to commit the same mistake. So what Mao says is, he tells Stalin, first of all, Mao sends a telegraph to Moscow and says, "Comrade Kim Il Sung tells us this. Is this what you told him?" And there's a message back from Foreign Minister Vashinsky <coughs> reporting on a conversation between uh, Comrade Filipov, who was the codename for Stalin, and his comrades, 
And basically, you know, what Philippoff Stalin said is, Mao gets the final voice. Mao gets the final voice. Mao could have said, well, let's wait until we liberate Taiwan. Come back and we'll talk, come back in a year and we'll talk about it. But Mao says, go. Two days after the North Korean attack, Truman orders the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Straits. Taiwan is still separate. Immense blunder. Immense <coughs> blunder. I am skeptical about whether this book will be published in mainland China because I'm very critical of Mao. Mao lost Taiwan for China. I mean, the Americans in 1949, had, 1950, had washed their hands of Taiwan. You know, by the end, after the Battle of Huaihai in the Chinese Civil War at the end of 1948, you know, the massive, the Gettysburg Battle of the Chinese Civil War, overwhelming national, uh, communist victory. And national armies were shattered, the, the writing was on the wall. And Americans realized that their, their China policy was a shambles. The policy of holding their nose and supporting Chiang Kai-shek against the communists was a shambles. It lost. So the Americans went back to the drawing board of into 48 and rethought American interests, and they concluded that the overriding American interest in Northeast Asia was to minimize communist China's alignment with the USSR. And in pursuit of that objective, the Americans basically put Taiwan outside of the defense objective, defense perimeter, that defense perimeter drawn by Chiang Kai-shek and by, by uh, Atchison and Truman. And even remember, it in December 1949 that the, the CIA estimate was leaked to the New York Times, which basically was CIA told, the, told Truman that unless there's U.S. military intervention, Taiwan will fall to, national, to communist armies within a matter of months. The expectation of Truman's policy was that Taiwan would fall to the, national, to the communist armies in a matter of months until the Korean War. Stalin put Mao in a real clever position. If, if, if the Americans didn't intervene in Korea, which, Mao, which Stalin and Mao calculated was the case, well then South Korea would become part of the socialist Korea and the Soviet Union would get the warm water ports in South Korea that it desired, that Stalin desired. If the Americans did intervene, then it was going to be China that had fought them. And that was, goes back to a this discussion of mid-1949 between Soviets and Chinese leaders. And basically, in 1949, it was agreed that the Soviet Union would continue leadership of the world revolution, but the Chinese communists would assume leadership of the Asian revolution. So the idea was that if things go amok in Korea and the Americans come in, it's going to be China that goes out. And Stalin actually told Kim Il-sung that, you know, you have to understand that if the Americans come in and kick you in the teeth, you go to Mao, you don't come to me. And the advantage of a war between China and the United States to Stalin was that he just drove a massive wedge between the Soviet, between the Chinese communists and the Americans. The Americans called that strategy courting Chinese Titoism. So, uh, immense blunder. Not a question? Any other questions? Well, I mean, this is just fascinating to me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so... Was Mao making active plans there then early in 1950 to invade Taiwan? There were, he was, but there was first of all the, the nationalists, the, the, the communists didn't have a navy. Right. Most of the navy went to Taiwan, so they didn't have much of a they didn't have much of an air force. Right. They were an infantry, or they were they were infantry army, and you know, so they attempted the invasion of, of Hainan. The, the invasion of it was an attempted invasion of must have been Mao Jinmen. It was Jinmen. Jinmen. They attempted an invasion of Jinmen. This must have been early 1950, early 49, and it was repulsed. And operations are simply very difficult, and, they, and the communists didn't have that capability. So there was that. Secondly, at the top of the China's of Mao's aid request from the Soviet Union was air naval stuff. Air naval stuff. Oh, and the advantage of an alliance with the USSR, which is what Mao wanted anybody got, was that it would 
protect China against the possible American intervention in the liberation of Taiwan in 1950. Um, so, what was, what was the second half of your question? No, I, no, that was it. You answered. I, I, I think you got. Yeah, it. Okay, this has to be the final question. Oh, the, I'm sorry. The, 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 the thing that there was an outbreak, outbreak of uh, snail. It's just Paris. the Yes, it's the Yeah. They were trying, the, the CCP was assembling an invasion army in the Fujian coast. And there was a, a, a intestinal parasite transmitted by, by snails. Systemismicus. That ravaged the army, and so they he had <coughs> six soldiers, and he didn't have an adequate air force or adequate navy, so they postponed it. If Mao had simply told Kim, come back in a year after we have Taiwan, the whole situation would have been different. Actually, I, I argue that the, the, the imposition of the Soviet model on China was an immense mistake. And China. Just think, how much wealth was destroyed by in 30 years of collectivized agriculture? I mean, you state investing money to build up new industries. I can understand that. You know, China doesn't have a, you know, a radio industry. It wants to start building railways, so the state supplies a lot of money. And, you know, Korea did that. Taiwan did that. Japan did that. That's East Asian model development. So the state build up, you know, new industry. That's one thing. But to destroy your capitalist class... You know, these hundreds of thousands or millions of capitalists that build up enterprises over, over a century of integration of the global economy to stifle the, the, the native entrepreneurial energy of Chinese that have made China one of the wealthiest countries in the world throughout history and are doing the same thing again now that they've given the freedom to them to, you know, Mao, there's a, a scholar named Li Huayu you. If you're interested in this, she wrote a book called The Economic Stalinization of China. And Mao did not have a very deep understanding of the Soviet economy. He had a very idealized version. Mao's understanding of the Soviet economy was based upon some very well, propagandistic writing by Joseph Stalin himself. And Mao thought this was the Soviet model had worked great, that the Soviet Union was a technologically advanced, industrially powerful country, rival of the United States, defeated Nazi Germany. And he believed that by transposing this model to, to China, they would, China would become a fully industrialized, technologically advanced country within 15 or 20 years. It set China back by 15 or 20 years, maybe, maybe more. I'm uh, interested in, oh, my name is John Hartman. And uh, I'm interested in the idea of Chinese greatness, again, as something to aspire to. And I just wonder if you know, having a three-car garage is part of greatness in, in the Chinese view. And if not, I mean, if it is, I mean, it looks like the United States is kind of, that's like our worldview, isn't it? Isn't that greatness in the Western style? There's a is there, is there, I'm sorry, just to follow up. Is there, is there another component, do you think, in the Chinese mind of what of Chinese greatness could be? There are different voices addressing this issue in China. There's actually a quite robust debate in China underway. Some people would say that greatness means that three, car, three cars in the garage, one, one of which is the Lamborghini. <laughs> the other is the Rolls you know, the Mercedes. Um, there are people that argue that. You know, Justin Lin's visions of, of, of a great China is uh, Chinese will approach the, the Western countries in levels of that, that consumption. They'll become, you know, affluent. China will become affluent, and China will be a marketized economy, and its economy will be not much different than in other countries around the world. That's, that's Justin Lin's model of Chinese greatness. But there's also voices that say, no, there is something unique about China which is different than the West, especially those Americans. We're not like the Americans. We're not like the West. There's something that's special about China. We're peaceful people. We're a harmony-loving people. We're not individualistic. We're collective. There's something special about us and that this we have a mission in the world 
to bring to the world our special new Chinese values. There's a Chinese exceptionalism, which is in some way very similar to American exceptionalism. You know, the Americans have this notion that we're going to carry peace and freedom, or freedom and democracy to the world. And Americans like to hear that. Well, the Chinese have their own variant of exceptionalism. And there are people, there are Chinese people that write about these issues in magazines and books and online that argue that it's Chinese des- China's destiny to become the number one military power in the world. The number one military power in the world. The United States is cutting its budget, defense budget, its navy. It's tired, it's getting old, it's getting lazy, doesn't want to bear these difficulties anymore. China's expanding, the Chinese people are confident and bold. It's just a matter of time until China supersedes the United States. Now, this is not the government line. And I'm not saying this is the mainstream. I'm not saying this is the voice regarding Chinese greatness. Uh, there are people in China, there are other people in China who say, look, for thousands of years, China was a center of, of Asia. China was, had, you know, up here, the emperor of China was up here, and little Japan, and little Okinawa, and little Korea, and Siam, and Java, and these other little potentates were, you know, ruled down here. And of course, that was the way it was because the Chinese are superior, and the Chinese virtue is superior, as manifest in China's greater we- wealth and order and power. And that this was the this this is a mythology, but this is the Chinese mythology. But the the next step in this mythology is well, that's the nat- that was the natural condition for thousands of years, until these these hairy barbarian barbarians came from the ocean to, to bring China low, starting with the opium wars. But now that China has ended that and put the condition to right, China restored China must once again mean China as the dominant power, the leading power, is certainly in Asia more likely in the world. China will pacify the world. China is a you know, paragon of virtue, of harmony, of peace. We're not like the, these aggressive Americans or Westerners who try to impose themselves and intervene. Again, this is not the mainstream voice. I'm not saying that this is one voice. It's a fascinating debate. The book you should read if you're interested here is William Callahan's China Dreams. It's dreams about visions of China's greatness. What would a great China look like? There's 20, the subtitle is 20 Visions of China's Greatness. There are 20 different views of this. I'm afraid I have to be one of those aggressive Americans (laughs) (laughs) because we've gone over our time. But I want to thank you again, John. It was fascinating. Um, So thank you.